Again, thanks for being here this weekend. I'm excited to be here with you guys to just fellowship and uh, catch up a little bit after the summer. Um, hope you guys are all well. Uh, maybe not well rested, but well uh, after class trips and all that good stuff. Uh, I'm excited to just hear more, uh, more stories, more fails, more side of the road kind of ordeals from those trips. Um, uh, Kimmy and I and the, the kids, I used to say the boys, but now the kids, uh, we're doing well. Uh, little Izzy is almost four months, and so we are, time is flying. So yeah, that's what the summer does. It's three months, so that's your guys' fault for having summer. Um, but yeah, no, they're growing, and Zach's a, a big bad first grader, and we are just enjoying the season and uh, loving um, in family life, but excited to get back to, to UCLA. So uh, as we look toward uh, the new school year, uh, Riley and I were discussing a little bit, and it was actually his idea, so I'm not taking any credit, but uh, to go through the book of Jude this weekend. Uh, and I think as I've studied uh, for these sermons, it has filled my heart with uh, just a satisfaction that we want with this book, because I think it is perfect as we begin this year to look at the truths in the book of Jude. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Jude. Um, that is, if you needed to sort of look at your table of contents, it is the second to last book in the Bible. So um, when Austin preached this book, he said, it's after the book of Third John, which doesn't help many of you. So um, it's before the book of Revelation, if that helps any more. But turn to the book of Jude. It's a short book, uh, just, well, it's one chapter, but just 25 verses long. And I want to begin our time uh, together this weekend in God's Word by reading all 25 verses and seeing first what uh, the book of Jude has to say in plain as we hear God's Word. So Jude, beginning in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and Deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness under the, uh, excuse me, until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain, to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones 
to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. This is your truth. And so, Father, as we've even just listened to it read out loud, there's so much for us to glean. Every time we come to you, we need your spirit. So we ask his help, and we open our hearts to what you would have to say for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Jude is wild. There's a lot going on in 25 verses. There's probably a reason that it is one of the most forgotten books in the Bible. It is short. It's tucked before the book of the Bible that we dare not turn to very often, Revelation, and so it kind of gets lumped in there at the end. But it has a tone to it that many read it and think, Oh, it's so negative. There's so much judgment here. But when I look at the book of Jude, I see compelling reason for us to study it this weekend. And I'll give you three reasons in just a moment. But because the book of Jude helps us to think rightly about our world and about the times that we live in. It helps us to think about truth and untruth, belief and unbelief, faith and lack of faith. And most importantly, it helps us to think about the lordship of our Christ in our lives and what it means to both keep ourselves in the love of God and then give glory to the God who keeps us and presents us blameless before his presence with, of his glory with great joy, verse 24. And so there's so much in Jude that helps us to think rightly as we begin a year contending for the faith on the UCLA campus. I want to give you three reasons on the front end of why I want to study Jude this weekend. There's sort of a why Jude a couple minutes here. Usually we'll spend a whole sermon doing this, but we don't have the time. And so I'm going to give you three reasons why we need to study Jude. First is it's novelty. It's novelty. We're turning a new page, so to speak, for a lot of you. You may not have ever read this book until just a minute ago, or you may not have read this book in a long time. And so it's relatively uh, unfamiliar. Maybe you've heard snippets of verse 3, or snippets of verses 20 and 21, or you've for sure heard at least verses 24 and 25 in someone's prayer or final word in crossroads or uh, read out loud by the worship leader at some point. But other than that, the middle of this book especially is, is scary, literally scary, 
but also from a Bible study level, intimidating and scary, at least for most of us. So this weekend, even if it's just one or two pages at a time, it's always good to make progress in your Bible with the sort of unfamiliar frontiers for you. And so let's do that together. That's the first reason. It's novelty. The second is its relevance. It's relevance. I believe the book of Jude, like I've said already a few times in different ways, will get us into a ready stance as we begin the year. We come into the year ready for fellowship, ready to see friends again, ready to get to know people. We need to be more than just emotionally and socially ready for the beginning of this year. We need to be ready to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints in our conversations with other people, in the ways that we talk about church and our faith and fellowship. I think the seriousness of Jude is perfect for us as we begin this year, as we consider the broader scope of what our faith really is and why it is a faith worth fighting for. And so we need to study Jude for its novelty, for its relevance, and then third and last, for its message. We need to have our minds set on the truth of God's word. And what we find in Jude is the gospel, faith, the reality of belief and unbelief and what that looks like in the lives of, sure, false teachers and apostate false teachers, but what that should look like for us, first and foremost. And so this evening, we'll look at just the first four verses, and I believe that on our first night back together as a ministry, it's absolutely providential what Jude has for us in this introduction. It's as if we have in our hands, in these four verses, uh, a crystal or a gemstone of some kind with all different kinds of sides. And we get to tonight, turn it a few times and look at the different elements of it. It's the kind of gemstone or a crystal that you've been told by the museum curator that it's valuable. So you know it's valuable, but it's not until you look at it from all these angles under the light for yourself and admire its beauty that you realize why it's so valuable. And so in the introduction to this brief and often overlooked letter, we have a multifaceted look at the faith that we hold. This faith that verse 3 says, was once for all delivered to the saints, this common salvation that we all share. And I think this look will help us to behold and to wonder and to worship because of what we have in our faith as those who are his. And so from these four verses, let's look at three perspectives that demonstrate the preciousness of our faith. Three perspectives that demonstrate the preciousness of our faith. First, in verses 1 and 2, let's look at this truth, that ours is a faith found in Christ. Ours is a faith found in Christ. As Jude begins his letter here, we see in this greeting, in these sort of normal letter-opening kind of words, treasured truth. Truth that exists throughout Scripture at this sort of baseline, easily missable, easily skip-overable level that tonight we need to set our attention upon, purposefully so, so that we don't miss this treasured truth. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. 
Here in verse 1, Jude first uh, identifies himself. It's the kind of introduction that you and I are familiar with. We've seen Paul do it. We've seen Peter do it. We don't see the author of Hebrews do it, but we wish he did. It's the kind of introduction that is common to ancient Near Eastern letter writing. You see it in books that are not in the Bible as well. But it's something that you see in many New Testament letters. Here, Jude's self-identification is twofold. It's what? Servant, or the word is slave, of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, uh, the brother of James. Now, the name Jude, to just rewind a little bit, is really actually the same name as Judas. And yet, because of the obvious connotations of Judas, this is not Judas, this is Jude. Uh, I mean, imagine if he said, hey, I'm Judas, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. It would take his readers a moment to think, well, Hold on, which Judas are you? It's like saying uh, Adolf, uh, servant, or Lucifer, uh, Ursula. (laughs) This is Jude. And the translators have helped us with that over time. Uh, We know this person's name was indeed Judas, but was known as Jude, at least a couple centuries in, as his letter was passed. Now, this Jude is neither of the disciples with this same name. So it's not Judas Iscariot or Jude Iscariot. It's not Judas, son of James, uh, also known as Thaddeus, the most gangster of the disciples. This Jude is, as verse 1 says, the brother of James. Not the son of James, but the brother of James. And the James that You and I know, now there's several, but the James that this is referring to is James, the elder of the Jerusalem church. James, the the author of the book of James. And so James and this Jude, who are brothers, are the James and Jude who are born of Mary. Mark 6.3, speaking of Jesus, is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, or Jude, and Simon. To be clear, Jude and James are the half-brothers of Jesus. This is a truth that we explored when we looked at the book of James a couple years ago. And yet here, Jude, as he writes his book, like James does also in James 1.1, Jude does not identify himself as Jude, the brother of Jesus. James does not say James, the brother of Jesus. But instead, Jude says here, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. Let's ponder a little bit why he says that. If we were to look at John 7, when Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, John tells us of the unbelief of Jesus' family, and specifically of his brothers, which would include Jude. John 7, 5 says plainly, For not even his brothers believed in him. In fact, it wasn't until the resurrection, if we looked at Acts 1, we would see that Jesus' brothers at that point And Jesus' brothers, again, would include Jude. At that point, they would finally believe in him. And by the time you get to 1 Corinthians 9, Paul describes the brothers of Jesus as those who were doing significant missionary work in the first century. And so here in the book of Jude, as Jude pens this letter, we have Jude, Jesus' own flesh and blood, the, the younger brother of the sinless son of God with every right and privilege to pull rank on the people he's writing to. And yet Jude bypasses his physical kinship to Christ and instead points to his spiritual relationship to Christ. And what's that? Servant. Slave. Doulos of 
Jesus Christ. Uh, Not brother of Jesus, not uh, apostle, not missionary extraordinaire, but undeserving, formerly unbelieving, now graciously redeemed servant of Jesus Christ. This is Jude. His is a faith humbly found in Christ, his Savior and Lord. Now, it may sound a little existential to you, or it might remind you of that old show, CSI, or it might give you beginning-of-the-year vibes when I ask you this, but who are you? Really, who are you? How would you answer that question? What do you find your identity in? How would you describe yourself if I gave you five words? If I said write a, an X bio, a Twitter bio, what would you have in that? Student? Son or daughter? Engineer? Pre-med student? Who took his MCAT already? Musician, maybe? A Christian husband, father, pastor? Like, what's your, who are you? How would you answer that? Friends, if your fundamental identity, maybe not in your Twitter bio, but at the core of who you are, if that identity is anything other than that of a faith found in Christ, And on top of that, maybe a servant of Jesus Christ. Then this is the time, this weekend maybe even, this is the time to recalibrate and refocus and reprioritize. Because ours is a faith found in Christ. For this season and for life, if you are a Christian, Your identity is that of a servant of Christ. You see, yours is a faith uh, not found in all the ways you serve. Yours is a faith not found in your head knowledge. Yours is a faith not found in your impressive leadership skills or your extracurriculars. Yours is a faith not found in anything of yourself. Yours is a faith found only in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Now, if you don't know Christ, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're with us this weekend. And I don't want to scare you right away, thinking that you have to make a life decision right now. But I do want to give you truth that could change your life right now. And it's the truth of the gospel. You may have heard this a million times before, or this may be the first time that you're hearing this. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he paid the penalty for our sin. Such that by faith and by faith alone, not by anything that we can do to earn favor from God, but simply by placing faith in Christ, we can have our lives appended and transformed into someone who was made to bear the image of God, into someone who actually is able to, imperfectly so, but following a Savior who is worthy. And it is that Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. And so if you've heard that truth, even just now for the first time, that is truth. That is this faith that we're talking about. A faith found in Christ. And it can be yours tonight for free, for nothing that you have to do. This is the gospel. And this is the faith that we have, a faith found in Christ. Now look at what Jude says about those to whom he's writing. As we'll go through this text, we'll see that they're surely Jewish Christians, given the content that we find in this short letter. We'll see more of that tomorrow. But look at verse 1b. Jude's introduced himself, and now he talks to those he's writing to, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. You see, Jude's faith is a faith found in Christ, and the, those that he's writing to, it, theirs is a faith found in Christ. And to that end, he wants to make sure they know they are called, they are beloved, they are kept. Now these are 
towering truths that we could spend the rest of the weekend on, and we would be right to, that those who are in Christ were called out of darkness and into marvelous light, beckoned from slavery to sin and bondage to their own flesh, sinners undeserving and unable to save themselves, called to be a part of the household of God. And yet not only called, as if that weren't enough, also beloved in God the Father, adopted by Him, loved by Him, made His own, and indeed made brothers of Christ in the household of God, as Hebrews says. When I think of being loved by God, I think the first passage that comes to mind is Romans 8, the very end. Romans 8 is so helpful in understanding a bunch of things, but I think verses 38 and 39 help us to think upon the love of God correctly. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor death or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are loved by God. We are beloved in God the Father, as Jude says. And we are kept. Kept by God for Jesus Christ. You see, we are sustained and held and kept secure until the day of Christ's return. We are kept for Jesus Christ when all who are His will be fully and finally in His presence. I think 1 Thessalonians 5 describes this truth so helpfully. And it's an echo of what's at the end of Jude, actually, as well. 1 Thessalonians 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 24, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Called, beloved, and kept. These surefire truths show us precious identity and security for our souls. And so it is in Christ that in back in Jude, Jude 2, we are to those, we are those to whom mercy and peace and love are multiplied. That we have mercy and peace and love in Christ in salvation. We have mercy extended to us as needy sinners. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God in Christ Jesus. Absolutely. In salvation, we have these things. But friends, ours is the faith found in Christ. And so these precious realities are extended to us and multiplied, as Jude says here. Overflowing mercy in our constant need every day. A peace that surpasses all understanding, and is available to us in every circumstance. That love that exceeds all loves and excels all others. In this greeting from Jude to his readers, we have this beautiful perspective of our faith. First here, a faith found in Christ that demonstrates in full dimension the preciousness of our faith. Secondly, in verse 3, we see that ours is a faith worth fighting for. Ours is a faith worth fighting for. If verses 1 and 2 are the introductory greeting in which we see our identity in Christ, verse 3 shows us the occasion for Jude's writing. In other words, why Jude is writing. And in this verse, we see another perspective of our faith we're turning the gemstone here just a little bit to see another dimension of it we see the preciousness of our faith in that it is a faith worth contending for it is a faith worth guarding and protecting and striving for it's a faith worth fighting for look at verse 3 Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend 
for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, Jude's reason for writing was originally to write about our common salvation. Perhaps he would have expounded on some of the truths in verses 1 and 2. And we could have had maybe a mini version of an Ephesians kind of book or a Romans kind of book or a Hebrews kind of book. Just think about it for a second. There was potential... God's providence aside, that this could have been your and my favorite book because it could have been a short version of the book of Romans, maybe. And yet somehow, there is a matter at hand more urgent, more pressing than even celebrating this salvation that we have via written letter. And yet, actually, what Jude does show us in this letter, and we'll see this, is that because ours is a faith worth writing about, celebrating, contemplating, clarifying, as a lot of uh, other books do, it is a a faith worth contending for. It's a faith worth fighting for. Ours is a faith worth fighting for. And Jude is compelled to write to these saints about the need he sees in their churches. The need to contend for this precious faith. It may not be in the same way that we are used to seeing. You see, this book is not full of uh, vivid descriptions of God's grace. It doesn't create a lot of doctrinal distinctions like other books do. It's not a theological treatise. It's short and simple and blunt. But at this weekend, we can see that our faith is a faith worth contending for. Then we have done our job. And Jude has done his job. Because a faith worth contending for is a faith of immeasurable value for those who actually do have it. And who truly understand that it is worth contending for. It's a faith whose main message, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is a pearl without price. It's a treasure hidden in the fields, an invaluable, priceless gift of grace that must be understood and held and be held and guarded and passed on with utmost gratitude. The word contending here means to wrestle or to struggle, to strive or to fight for. It's the same word with a preposition added to it as verses that you might know. Colossians 1.29 For this I toil, Paul says, or 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight, the good fight of faith, Paul says there, that word fight. Or 2 Timothy 4, uh, I have fought the fight, I have finished the race, that, that word fight again, this same word that we see here. That which Paul says he strives for and fights for in gospel progress, Jude tells us here, we must strive for and fight for to defend. You see, there's great commission work to be done and gospel progress to be made. We know that uh, on the UCLA campus even. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.14, there's a deposit that we've been entrusted with that we must guard. We must contend for the faith. Uh, We must, 2 Timothy 2.2, entrust these things to others who can teach others also. And in that way, we must contend for the faith. 2 Timothy 2.15, we must rightly handle the word of truth. And in that way, we must contend for the faith. We must preach the word, reprove and rebuke and exhort with it. And in that way, contend for the faith. Friends, there's souls to be saved and a message that must go forth. All of this we must strive for. We must toil over. We must contend for. 
And sometimes I think we don't know the value of what we have. And we show that it's not sometimes a faith worth fighting for. There's an old TV show that you might know about that uh, was an integral part of my childhood because I was a child without what back then was cable television. I had channel 3 for the VCR, channel 5, channel 7, channel 9, and channel 20. On channel 9, public television, long before the days of streaming services, there was one of the greatest shows to ever grace the television sets of America, Antique Roadshow. You guys know about this show? Yeah, some of you guys. Some of you guys have seen clips. When you watch the show, it looks at first kind of like an SNL skit. Like, you're not sure. Are these people serious? Or is this a skit of some kind? That Like, I'm just, i got to wait for the, the jokes to start. Um, it's real. Some of the funniest uh, snippets of Antique Antique Roadshow are, well, I can explain the premise a little bit. That, that helps, right? So it's this traveling roadshow that uh, goes around and, and appraises antiques. So you bring in your old candelabra or your old uh, chest of drawers or your Civil War coin, and it gets appraised in front of the cameras. And so some of the funniest uh, snippets of this show are when someone brings in what they think is ex something extremely valuable. Uh, something that's been passed along in their family supposedly for five or six generations. An old gun that predates the Civil War. And the appraiser gets it and says, you know what, I think actually uh, this was made about 10 or 12 years ago. And the person goes away thinking that what they had is no longer valuable, but wait, my great-grandpa told me that he had it. What do I do? And they always... in defense, say, well, I'll keep it because it's a family heirloom. Now, some of the most surprising snippets of this show, though, are when someone brings on something that is absolute junk. Uh, it, it's their living room table that someone told them looked like something they saw uh, on a documentary, or an old coin that sat on the dresser as someone's lucky coin for years and it's starting to to show its wear and the appraiser takes it and says actually what you have is something rare and invaluable what you have in your hands or what you eat your cereal on every day is actually worth major bank and those appraisers don't use the word major bank but they they say it's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is what Jude is telling us. This is what Jude is showing us. We have a, a precious, valuable faith. We have a faith worth fighting for if it came to it. And in fact, Jude is saying there is a time when you must be ready to fight for it. Our common salvation is worth contending for. We have an immeasurably valuable faith because it is the very salvation of our souls and the hope of all mankind. This faith, once for all, delivered to the saints, was once for all accomplished by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 1-2 tells us that in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Turn with me to Hebrews 10 and we see the once for all faith. Hebrews 10, verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at a service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 1 Peter 1 tells us that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, being guarded by God's power. Friends, ours is a faith 
found in Christ and his once-for-all work and finished on the cross. It's a faith that is sure, settled, and secure. And now we have it in God's written word, signed and sealed and once-for-all delivered, Jude says. We have the inspired word of God, what Second Peter 1.19 calls the prophetic word made more sure. You see, this side of the cross and this side of the printing press, we have the full revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus and in the Holy Scriptures. And given that truth, I wonder if you know and if you live like your faith is a faith that is settled and sure and secure. I wonder if where your gaze is as you walk with Jesus, whether that gaze is helping you or hurting you. I wonder whether, like Christian, on the road to the celestial city, on the narrow path, whether your eyes are on the path that is sure or your eyes are on the meadow that looks good by the path or if your eyes are on the roaring beasts that are on either side of the path, or if your eyes are on the storm that seems to be coming, I wonder if you're aware that what you have in your hands, or the value of what you read when you eat your cereal every morning. Thomas Brooks says this in his book, Heaven on Earth. To be in a state of true grace is to be miserable no more. It is to be happy forever. A soul in this state is a soul near and dear to God. It is a soul much beloved and very highly valued by God. It is a soul housed in God. It is a soul safe in God's everlasting arms. It is a soul fully and eminently interested in all the highest and noblest privileges. The being in a state of grace makes a man's condition happy safe, and sure. But the seeing, the knowing of himself to be in such a state is that which renders his life sweet and comfortable. The being in a state of grace will yield a man a heaven hereafter, but the seeing of himself in this state will yield him both a heaven here and a heaven hereafter. It will render him doubly blessed. Blessed in heaven and blessed in his own conscience. I wonder if you see yourself in this state. I wonder if you see yourself with a faith that is a faith found in Christ and that is a faith worth fighting for. I pray that you do see this and that you do know this about our common salvation. That the once for all delivered to the saints faith that we have is that kind of a truth to you, an anchor in doubt, a beacon in the storm, a safeguard in struggle. And yet this side of heaven in a sin-sick fallen world, what we see in Jude is that ours is and will always be a faith worth fighting for and a faith that we must fight for. It's worth striving on behalf of and will be called to strive on behalf of it. Yes, it is sure and settled and secure. The full and final revelation of which we have once for all in Christ and his work and in the Holy Scriptures. But the message of Jude is that we must contend for this precious, priceless faith. And that brings us to our final perspective, our third perspective in verse 4. Ours is a faith assailed. Ours is a faith assailed. Look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Here in verse 4 we see the pressing matter that Jude sees in the churches that he's writing to. This is what caused him to start a new word document in verse 3 and Instead, to urge his readers and to urge us to contend for the faith. 
false teachers, those who have crept in, individuals that Jude, throughout this letter, insidiously refers to simply as certain people, these people. It's hard to know who exactly these teachers are, these false teachers. They're, we do know they're not the Gnostics that you see in some of the other books. There may be some kind of proto-Gnostics that have some similarities, but a lot of differences. Here in Jude, though, what's important is that we'll see it's not so much who these people are or what their teaching may have been that stands out. What we see is the importance of how they act and how they live. There, Jude says it here and several times in a row using Enoch's prophecy, they're ungodly people. There are those whom Jude says here were long ago designated for this condemnation. Now, this word long ago is a word that just simply means beforehand. It was accentuated in some translations, but it means before or beforehand. And so this could be a reference to Second Peter. I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret that might be cool to read later this week, but Second Peter is very like the book of Jude in its language, in its illustrations, uh, in its message. Uh, so this long ago or this beforehand could be Jude's reference to Second Peter potentially. You see, if Jude is warning us, these people are here. Second Peter it was saying, warning, these people will come. And so Jude could be just pointing back to uh, Peter's letter. Other commentators think that what this long ago means is that this kind of people, this type of people, have been condemned before in judgment long ago, and they continue to be judged in a way that could be said as long ago and sure and, and has happened and will forever happen. And so I don't think Jude is giving us a theology of divine reprobation here or anywhere in this book in exactness, but that rather this is a statement of the timelessness or the predictability of unbelief, that unbelief of old and unbelief in the here and now have been and are designated for condemnation. These certain people live a mess of the gospel. They're living out an unbelief worthy of God's judgment, in other words. And they teach others to do the same, whether by their mouths or by their example. Their doctrinal errors, from a technical sense, aren't evident in this book. Scholars like to take a lot of guesses. But I think that's what's so helpful about Jude, is that what we see an emphasis on is the inherently moral aspect of what a false teacher is, and what unbelief is. Cults and false religions have twisted the gospel for centuries, denying the Trinity, denying the resurrection, uh, denying the deity of Christ, denying the humanity of Christ. But example after example after example of false religion comes hand in hand with moral failure. Bad doctrine with bad living. But here's the thing. These false teachers are not cults and false religions out there somewhere. These certain people, they've crept in. They're creepers. They started from the beige card and now they're here. They checked things out on a Friday night just like everybody else. You see, no one thinks this is them at first. It's just a novel idea about discipleship that I have that no one's really taken seriously before. 
It's just this problem passage that I have a different view on. Yeah, I know that one scholar says it that way, but it's not even really that. It's more this. The way I share the gospel, I think, is more effective. If you do it this way, and you emphasize this, and yeah, I know that passage says that, but try this. Start small. And it affects your life before you know it. At this age... I don't like to advertise that I'm not that much older than you guys, but I am. At this age, I've got a handful of friends I can think of right now that I pray for regularly because I have friends who are are these certain people. They were with me in a room like this 10 years ago, but now they're these certain people. And you see, the audience of this kind of a person doesn't have to be big. They don't have to have stadiums of people listening to their false gospel. It could just be this person's poor wife and kids held captive by this kind of uh, a person. Jesus in Matthew 7, 15 calls these kind of people wolves in sheep's clothing. You see, their error may very well be doctrinal. But their error is equally moral here, too, and we'll see that through and through tomorrow morning. What may seem to start with an obscure translation of a passage or a philosophical problem uh, this kind of person has with the faith or a difficulty they have with the way they do things around here, the bottom line is that this kind of a person takes the grace of God and turns it into license for pursuing what their heart wanted all along. Flesh and sin and self. They want all the blessings and benefits of being in the church without being those who are truly His. Without submitting their lives to Him and living for Him. They take the very gospel that we believe, the very grace of God, the blessed hope we have in Christ, and they use all that is precious to our faith to serve their own desires, denying Jesus as Master and Lord, Jude says here. And how can this be? How can someone in the midst of God's people go so awfully astray? Surely this could not, right? This would not happen at a good church, in a ministry like ours. And you and I should pray and hope not and trust the Lord that that would not and guard the flock that that would not happen. But this is a biblical reality. Jude shows us that all throughout the ages, there exists this terrible and awful reality of apostasy, of error, of falling away of moral failure, of how the acquisition of God's blessings can turn straight into rebellion. These certain people can be in our midst. They can be amongst God's people. They can be part of what God seems to be doing, and yet they are those who over time prove that they are not part of God's people. 1 John 2 says this and tells us of this reality. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. What 1 John 2.19 is saying is that those who remain faithful will remain faithful. And those that over time prove that they were never of the faith will show themselves plain. It's the test of time. It's the test of faithfulness. It's the test of keeping yourself in the love of God and being kept by the God who loves. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 13 when he talked about the kingdom reality of the wheat and the tares. Maybe as you heard Jude read read earlier, and uh, as you think about it now, you think this couldn't possibly, in a million years, be you. 
And that's exactly why we need this study in Jude. And so before you and I think they, the warning of Jude is for us. 2 Corinthians 13.5, a timely warning for all of us. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And by God's grace, Jude will show us how we are to keep ourselves in the love of God and how it is that God, who himself keeps us, does this work in us as we study this weekend. This retreat is not to scare you that there now specifically exists someone like this in our midst, although if you're creeping, let's talk. This retreat is to help us to see the timelessness of our faith, uh, the distinct and definitive nature of salvation, and the significance of staying faithful in your faith, in your life, and in your ministry. If you ever find yourself in San Francisco at 12 noon on a Tuesday, you'll think it's time to get a salami sandwich or a surf and turf burrito from the place on mission. Maybe a late cup of coffee with a chocolate croissant. And as you sit down to eat, the clock strikes 12. You will hear a low, long siren blaring just across the street. Followed by a voice, a monotone voice, a dude's monotone voice saying, this is a test. This is a test of the outdoor warning system. This is only a test. It's the outdoor public warning system, technically called, and affectionately referred to as the Tuesday noon siren. It's a network of 119 air raid style sirens that are installed across San Francisco installed in 1942, and in the modern day, this siren has its own Twitter account, at SF Siren. Right now, the siren is on hiatus because of COVID. Uh, don't worry, the siren will be back in 2024. The first time that you hear this siren, it's a startling sort of party trick experience that you can tell other people about. It's kind of jarring, actually. What, what, it makes you think right away uh, when, it, when it happens and when it's done. But what could have happened that made that necessary? If you're from San Francisco, after you've lived in, in the city for a while, you, you get used to it. It becomes background noise. It's a quiet reminder that you should take your lunch break soon or that class is almost out, maybe. And for those old enough to know war and the constant fear of attack, the Tuesday noon siren is a chilling weekly reminder of the reality of war. And apart from actual war, having uh, an outdoor warning system, an alarm system, is protection. It's a provision for safety. It's a weekly reminder that there's a system for this. Somebody's thought about this. You're going to be okay. We're just testing things out. There's a plan. And that's what the book of Jude is for us. It's our Tuesday noon siren against the very real and dangerous threat of false teachers that rise up from even within the church. These certain people that Jude characterizes at great length are going to be of great help to us. Us who are of the fold of God so that we can understand the seriousness of sin, the great peril of unbelief, and the amazing grace of God in our common salvation. You see, if this is the first time you're hearing this warning, it will be a little bit jarring. And as time goes on, the tendency will be to let the message of Jude wane in your heart. But this weekend, would God broaden our perspective and instill the message of Jude on our hearts in a way that is beyond our first-hand experience of 
this kind of spiritual warfare. That we would see a faith assailed is a faith that much more precious to those whom it belongs. And so as this warning sign of Jude, uh, warning siren of Jude begins, and as this weekend begins, it's been needful to consider these perspectives of the preciousness of our faith, a faith found in Christ, a faith worth fighting for, and a faith assailed. Let's pray, and then we're going to spend actually some time in prayer together, thanking God for our salvation. So let's pray first, and then we'll talk about what we're going to do. Father, thank you for these friends and for this passage and for the time to think upon the faith that we hold. Father, you have been so very gracious to us, and we are uh, incredibly grateful for all that you have done uh, for us and in us and through us. And so, Lord, uh, tonight we pause before even thinking about what next week will bring and all of the excitement and the new people and the ministry to do. We pause and we uh, look at this gem of a passage and rotate that gem and see uh, the greatness of our salvation, the preciousness of our faith. So, Father, help us to a glory in Christ and to praise uh, you, O oh God, for all that you've done. And Father, to learn to lean on the Spirit's help uh, much more than we already do. And so, Father, help us as a ministry, we ask. Uh, and now, would this time be a blessing in Christ's name?